Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. After the communist revolution in 1949, foreign priests and nuns were made to leave mainland China, and many of them came here to Hong Kong. Among them was the Hungarian Jesuit priest Father Laszlo Ladani. His ability to read between the lines of Communist Party speak made him the preeminent China watcher for 30 years from 1952. He would study newspapers and radio broadcasts as much for what they omitted as for what they said, and then work out what was really happening at the time of the Great Chinese Famine and the Cultural Revolution. Coming to this region as a young journalist, Mark O'Neill revered Father Ladani's painstaking ability to assess what was going on in China and imitated his techniques. In this week's program, Mark tells me about the life of Hungarian Jesuit priest Father Laszlo Ladani. Well, today we're speaking about a very remarkable Jesuit priest, and he was the world's number one China watcher for 30 years. That is from 1952. Until 1982, he produced something called the China News Analysis, which was the most authoritative document explaining what was going on in mainland China for 30 years. So, is that how you first came across him as a young journalist? Oh yes, and his method of working was copied by me and hundreds, perhaps thousands, of others, which is that China, like the Soviet Union, is a closed system. It's extremely secretive. It's very hard to get interviews, and if you do get interviews, people rarely say things differently than what is already in the public domain. So what Father Ladani did was, he would read all the Chinese newspapers. He would listen to Chinese radio stations, Beijing radio stations, provincial radio stations. He would collect a huge amount of official information and. Of course, a lot of this information is in code. It's not as we would report it. The most important fact may be be at the end, or it may be put in code language, or it may be omitted. For example, there would be a meeting of the Politburo, and someone is not mentioned. But they won't say Mr. Liu wasn't there. They would just read the names of the people who were present at the meeting, and Father Ladani would say, "Oh, Mr. Lin is absent." So when I was in mainland China, I used exactly the same working methods that Father Ladani did. So I think many people did the same thing. He's like the father of China watching. So as a Jesuit priest, that's you know he was, as you say, the main China watcher from 1952 to 1982. Tell me where. So he was born in Hungary. Yes, he was born on January the 14th, 1914, in Hungary. His father was a doctor. Now his father's family was Jewish, but his father converted. Many Hungarian Jews converted. So he was a very smart student. He went to University of Budapest and he did a law degree. So they converted from Judaism to Christianity. Was that because of the politics of the country? I'm afraid I don't have details of that. But what I know is that many Jewish people, perhaps who are not very religious Jews, I mean they were more secular Jews. They lived in an environment that was anti-Semitic. Many Jewish people are in professions: they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're accountants. They're at the top of society, and these anti-Semitic prejudices count there. So, in order to make their own life more comfortable, they converted. But I, I can't say in the case of the Ladani family that was that was the reason. But that's why many Jews converted. 
So the young Laszlo went to University of Budapest. He studied law and got a law degree. And he also studied violin to a professional level. So when he graduates, he can either become a lawyer or he could become a professional violinist. He's at that level. But in July 1936, he decides to become a Jesuit. And he's sent to Taming, which is a town in Hebei province, which is where the, the Hungarian Jesuits had a mission. Then he was sent to Beijing for two years to study Mandarin. Then he did two years of teaching at a college in Tianjin, and then four years of theology in Shanghai, where he was ordained in June 1946. Now, of course, this is the war. This is the period of the anti-Japanese war. So. He is there in China during this extraordinary period. And it's an extremely intense time. And so not only would he learn Chinese, he would have very close relations with Chinese people and he would see up front what they're enduring during the war. And this gave him a identification with Chinese people, which he never lost for his whole life. So after 46, he was supposed to become a missionary in China. That was why he was being trained. But of course, the communist armies arrive, they conquer the mainland. So he flees to Guangzhou and then he flees to Hong Kong and he comes here in June 1949. And the government expelled all the foreign missionaries. So suddenly here in Hong Kong, we have hundreds, maybe thousands of missionaries, Protestant, Catholic missionaries, all these different orders, they all arrive in Hong Kong. And some are then sent back to their home countries, some are sent to new missions overseas. But in his case, he's, he remains here, he's in Ritchie Hall, and he starts being a pastor to the students at Ritchie Hall. And then his superior says, we in the Catholic Church, we need to know what's going on in China. So, why don't you start to write a, a newsletter? So I'm talking with Mark O'Neill today about the life of Father Laszlo Ladani. He's a Hungarian Jesuit priest who starts off in Hungary, moves to China uh, once he becomes a Jesuit priest, and then, of course, is thrown out at the time of the Communist Revolution. Yes, there would have been a whole melting pot here uh, 1949 onwards of all these different people coming out of China and also I think it would have enriched Hong Kong in terms of well particularly with the Jesuit priests many of these priests would then and nuns who came out of China would really provide a backbone also for Hong Kong's education system at that time you know you would had a lot of refugee children coming in and a lot of these priests and nuns applied themselves there but in his case as you say they need this, or they say at Ritchie Hall, which of course was the Jesuit headquarters here, that they need uh, a China watcher. So, I mean, looking at what technology would have been available then, how would you set about being a China watcher in 1952? Well, I just want to say a little bit about background. I mean, there's no religious order in the world that has given more attention to China. I mean, the first Jesuit missionary to China was Matteo Ricci, and he had a, a quite extraordinary life. He goes from Macau, then to Guangdong, and then he ends up in Beijing, and he becomes advisor to the emperor. He had skills and knowledge that the Chinese emperor wanted, and his literati and intelligence he didn't have. So Matteo Ricci developed a very close relationship with the ruling elite in Beijing, and he converted some of them. So ever since that time, 
The Jesuits have had this great interest in China, so it's completely logical that Father Ladani's boss wanted him to do this newsletter because they look at it over centuries. I mean, the communists are in power now, okay? They've been in power since 49, okay? But for how long? So their perspective is one of centuries. So we've got to keep ourselves informed about China for the future. So how does he start? Well, of course, it's extremely difficult because in the Korean War, Mao Zedong chooses to send troops to the North Korean side. And this causes a rift with the United States, a rift with the Western world. Chinese troops and American troops and Western troops fight in Korea. So China... So this is 1951, 1950, 51, yeah. So this means that China is cut off from the Western world. So it means that there are almost no diplomats from the Western world in, in the mainland, no journalists, no businessmen, no visitors. Of course, there are diplomats, travelers from Soviet Union, from the communist world, but not from the Western world. So here is Father Ladani sitting here in Hong Kong. And how is he to get information about what's going on in China after this rift, the Cold War? So what he does is he starts to read all the Chinese communist newspapers. He listens to radio bulletins from Beijing and from Guangzhou and from other places. And this is a very painstaking <laughs> and difficult job because a lot of it's very repetitive. A lot of it is code language. It's not telling you exactly what has happened. It uses the, the code words of the communist ideology, just like in the Soviet Union. So I think most people would get exhausted from doing this and, and say, give me another occupation. Because, of course, he couldn't enter China. Now, he could do some interviews with people who've come out. So that was part of his research work. But mostly it was the, the study of the texts and listening to, to the radio stations. So this is where you need someone with enormous dedication, enormous patience, and, of course, a very high level of Chinese, which he had because he'd been there since 1936. So he had a very high level of spoken and written and listening comprehension. So who were these newsletters for? Initially, the newsletters were for his boss, for the Jesuit hierarchy you know, in Asia and also in Rome. But it soon became a very popular newsletter for everyone who wanted to know about China. And the situation has not really changed today. So that means newspapers, news agencies, embassies, banks, consulates, businesses. I mean, everybody wants to know what's going on in China. So even though it's cut off from the Western world and its trade with the West is extremely limited, everybody wants to at least to have a source of information, to know what's going on. Maybe China is going to change. Maybe we will be able to trade with them. How long is Mao Zedong going to stay in power? What kinds of things are going on? So he becomes the must-read. And it, it's very convenient for everyone else that he's doing this because a bank or a university or a consulate could appoint someone to do the same thing. But it would, be, it would take an enormous amount of time. And, of course, you need great expertise to do it because to be able to read and understand what's what's going on it, as I say it's not evident from the text alone you no, it's highly complicated and as you say a lot of I would imagine rather boring some of the Communist Party rhetoric that would have been coming out uh, blaring over the radio or in these uh, and also really I presume that a lot of it would be talking China up so in terms of what would be published in mainland Chinese papers at that time 
Yes, well, I would say in many aspects not, nothing much has changed until now. If you read the People's Daily today, you know, it's speeches of President Xi Jinping and other senior officials, reports of meetings, and often the meaning, the significance of events is not immediately apparent. And one word or a phrase is used differently today than it was last week. And apparently it's the same, but someone like Ladani would spot there's been a, a change in the meaning. And, you know, in the 1950s, in 1960s in China, so much happened. I and mean, it was a period of extraordinary drama, these uh, political campaigns which Mao Zedong unleashed, which had a cataclysmic effect on Chinese society. And in many cases, we only learned much later what the effect was. So yes, you'd have aspects of the Cultural Revolution later, but also there were all sorts of policies, weren't they? That, you know, people should make their own pig iron and also shoot sparrows. Yeah, so this would be the first scoop of Father Ladani because Chairman Mao launches the Great Leap Forward in 1958 and the Chinese steel production must exceed that of the United States and the UK. That was the slogan. So that means everybody in China, including farmers and villages, have got to produce steel. So all the pots and pans and all the pieces of iron and steel in a house were all confiscated and then they were put on a common place and they were made into steel. And of course it's hopeless, it can't be used for anything. And the family have lost the means they had to make food. So this produces the Great Famine and Ladani is the first person to describe this. Not in one day, this thing becomes apparent over the course of time. So how did he know? Well, because he was reading every week the reports, realizing what was going on, and the figures for grain production were greatly exaggerated. So it's completely impossible that the grain production in Henan or in Sichuan increases 20 or 30 percent or 50 percent from one, one year to another. It's completely impossible. I mean, with manufactured goods you could do it, but not with, with grain. So he comes up with a figure of 30 to 40 million dead. And he was the first person to come up with this figure. Now, subsequently, much more research has been done. Chinese scholars, foreign scholars have written about this event, and their estimates are similar to that of Ladani. But he was the first one, and it was a really extraordinary achievement to come up with this. Yes, indeed, with the materials that he had in front of him. I remember when I talked to the former BBC correspondent Anthony Lawrence before he died. I mean, he was died a few years ago uh, at the age of 101. And he said that uh, one of the key aspects was seeing the people queuing up here at the post office to send boxes of food and other goods to their relatives. Uh, but um, that would have been at a later a stage where the information was out. But to be able to try and ascertain how many people died in such a closed society is, as you say, a, quite an achievement through looking at newspapers and listening to the radio reports. So he was able to pick apart all of these different aspects in these, well, also, by sound, by provincial reports as well. Yes, well, uh, the famine was more serious in certain provinces than other provinces. But, as I say, nothing is stated. So what you have to do is say, what was the grain production in Sichuan this year? What was it last year? What was it three years ago? What are the projections? The provincial officials, they want to impress Beijing. They want to impress Mao. So they come up with increases in production that don't exist. And then what happens is, on the basis of the increased figures, Beijing then takes from that province a certain amount of grain 
and they take it to Beijing. And it means that in this province there's not enough left, or there's almost none left. And another aspect of this is the population figure. China publishes the, the population of provinces one year to another. But again, you, you have to have all the figures for the previous years, you have to compare them. That would be another way to know how the population's gone down. And remember, he also did interviews with refugees from the mainland. I mean, this, this wouldn't have been his main work, but of course that's another important way to find out. I would like to say just a little more about the famine. I mean, I worked in the mainland a long time. We knew about the famine, but no one ever spoke about it. And I, I thought this is very strange. And when was the famine? What were the years? 58 to 62. And I thought this is such a cataclysmic event. 30 to 40 million died. So it means w when you meet somebody, it's quite possible that they have a relative or a, a friend or a teacher or somebody they know who died or was affected by this famine, but nobody spoke about it. So I just remember once we were in a place called Ningxia, which is the interior, and we were having a dinner with a man, and we'd all drunk quite a lot, and everyone was very relaxed. And out of the blue, he started to reminisce about this, and he was a boy during the Great Famine. So he said in his village there was no food. So his parents said, go and find some food. So there's no buses or trains or anything. So he walks to the next village, in the next village he sees many corpses on the ground and there's no food there either. So he then walks to the next village, again he sees many corpses and there's no food. And finally he f finds a village where there is food so he's able to acquire some and take it back to his family. And he described it in a very matter-of-fact manner. And right at the end he said, you know, I shouldn't be telling you all this. This is not something we like to speak about. It's very painful for us to speak about it. And that is the only single individual I ever met in the mainland who described the personal experience of the famine. As I say, I've, I've seen materials, I've met scholars who talk about it as an intellectual subject, but this was the only person who described the actual experience. So I think everyone who went through it, it was so horrific that you never want to speak about it again. It is too painful for you. It involves members of your own family. The best thing to do is to close it, close that door, and get on with your life elsewhere. I, I think that's the reason more than the official reason, which is to keep silent about it because it's such a shameful episode in, in China. Now, another area where Father Ladani did very well is the Cultural Revolution. This unfolded from 1966 and again, Father Ladani was right on top of this. He followed it very, very closely. He could tell us what was happening from one week to another. And it was very hard to believe what was going on. And if you describe what was going on then to people outside of China, it was, it was incredible. But his evidence could not be challenged. And you may remember at that time, Mao Zedong's number two was called Lin Biao. He was the Minister of Defense. And one day, Lin Biao and his family took an aeroplane to the Soviet Union and it crashed in Mongolia, and Lin Biao was killed along with his family members. And Father Ladani was the first with this news, and when people heard this, it was beyond comprehension, because Lin Biao was the number two, the successor of Mao. So how could it possibly be that this man had run away, and his plane had crashed, and uh, was this fake news? You know, Ladani had chapter and verse, and he had 
predicted the fallout. He'd already described the fallout between these two people. That's incredible. So for him, it was not a, it was not a surprise. For him, it was a completely predictable event that these two very ambitious and powerful individuals would fall out and only one of them could be number one and Lim Biao tried a coup d'etat and it failed and the only option for him was to try and run away so he tried to get asylum in Soviet Union but he failed and that event especially shocked the whole pro-China establishment in the world because as you know there were many supporters of communist China and Chairman Mao in the United States and Europe and they couldn't possibly believe this had happened for them it was fake news but Ladani could not be challenged on, on, on this point now, that is an amazing resource that he provided by studying, as you say, the, the newspapers and listening to the radio for hours, I should think. It must have been a very labour-intensive job and also with his superb Chinese, both of written Chinese and spoken Chinese knowledge, that he could hear every nuance and, and read how the syntax had changed is quite extraordinary. I mean, a very intelligent man, but also super patient. Oh, yes. And, and I mean, I, I, I would say you need to have this kind of religious dedication. Well, let's talk about photographs. And this is another important source of news in China, or indeed in communist countries. You know, you have a picture of Politburo meeting or a central committee meeting or, uh, you know, a large group of leaders. And to most people, everyone looks the same. But Father Ladani would be able to look along and, and note that one person or two persons or three persons who should be in the picture are not there. This would then set him off to wonder, well, where are they? And then he would then check this with written material and find out that their names were missing from meetings or events where they should have been present. They've been purged. They've been purged. Or, as you know, in, in <laughs> photographs are doctored. So you have an original photograph, but then one person has been demoted and removed from power, and then he's removed from the photograph, so the photograph <laughs> changes. But you'd, you'd have to be very sharp to spot that. But by the 70s, I mean, Ladani was famous, so he'd become the guru. So everyone in Hong Kong would be seeking his advice. So this was also useful for him, because he could then exchange ideas with people, and by then... The China-Washington community was quite substantial, and of course there were people in the U.S. consulate or in the other consulates or in um, academic establishments who had a, a level of knowledge, understanding, which would be useful for him. But as I say, he was very unpopular with the, the very left-wing people in Europe and America because they felt he was being too harsh, too severe on the Communist Party. And what, idealists? Yes, and, and they wanted to believe that the Chinese Communist Party had created a new kind of state and that they'd done things which hadn't been done in the Soviet Union or in Eastern Europe and there were things that we should f copy from them and that Mao was a very charismatic leader and so forth. But as you say, his analysis, with this stringently looking at what the Communist Party, what Mao was up to, didn't suit the perhaps more idealist idea of a communist utopia perhaps but also would you say though having read what he did that he was telling the truth or would you say that he did have an anti-communist attitude? Well of course we can't separate this from the fact that he was a Jesuit who had trained to work in China with the Chinese people. And also been thrown out. And had been thrown out so of course all these people had a great sense of disappointment that they weren't able to fulfill this mission and 
they all believed, which is quite correct, that the New Communist Party oppressed religion. No one can argue with that. And especially oppressed the Catholic Church in China. No one can argue with that either. So that was his sentiment. But I think his research was extremely rigorous and painstaking, and his conclusions were based on what he knew. So whilst in his emotional self he had this anger and disappointment towards China, this didn't affect his professional work. I don't think so, because that wouldn't be possible for some, an intellectual like him. What happens in the early 80s, he's, you know, he's, now, he's now getting on, and this work requires enormous amounts of time and energy, and so he passes it on to other Jesuits, and he starts to write books. So he, he's written two very important books. One is called The Communist Party of China, A Self-Portrait. No, it's not a self-portrait of himself. It's a self-portrait of the Communist Party. And why does he use that phrase? Because he's describing it through their own words. So that's what makes it so accurate. So this summarizes all the years that he was working there. He also writes a book about the Catholic Church in China. And here his position is very clear. The new government sets up Protestant and the Catholic Church under the state control. And his view is that this state-controlled Catholic Church is improper and people should have nothing to do with it. And that the purpose of this church is to destroy Catholicism in China. That's the view of Father Ladani. Now, this is a very complicated and controversial topic now, because as you know, the, the current Pope is thinking about, is negotiating with Beijing, should, it, should there be diplomatic relations between the two. So there's a very intense debate within the Catholic Church as to, as to what to do. And Ladani's position on this is very, very clear, and it wouldn't have changed today. If he was sitting here and we had asked him, he would say, you absolutely cannot establish diplomatic relations because this state church is not a proper church. It's an organ of the... Uh, Communist Party. So if I could just give you a quote that he, he said about this. He said, the difference between the rule of a dictator and communist rule is that whereas the first uses drastic measures, it rules only over the body. Communist rule, on the other hand, is more subtle. It pretends to be democratic, socialist, it holds elections, but it attempts to extend control over the soul of man. So that is Father Ladani's position on that. Father Ladani passes his work to a group of younger Jesuits and they continue doing the newsletter. But as 1997 approaches, of course, they have to decide what to do. Where should they leave these archives? And they decide it's too dangerous to leave them here. So in 1994, they moved to the Fuzhen Catholic University in Taiwan. So that's where all the papers are. So does Richie, what was Richie Hall, does that still exist today? Oh yes, uh, Ritchie Hall is, is there, it's part of Hong Kong University, it's a hostel for Catholic students. I've been there several times to interview Catholic priests, it's still a, a Catholic centre. This is where he lived and where he worked. Is there still a sort of a centre for Jesuit priests here or did that move in 1994? Uh, there was a lot of discussion about what to do, but uh, no, they kept Ritchie Hall, so there were Jesuits there and there were students there and the, and the priests there look after the students. Does he live the rest of his life here? He stays here. He devotes himself to writing these books. And in one of the memorials I've read about him, this is a close friend 
of his whom he knew here and has moved to Umbria and has a beautiful house in Italy yes has a beautiful big house in Umbria with <laughs> rolling hillsides and you know vineyards and you know the kind of dream home so each year his friend says to Father Ladani look you're retired now you've got more time please come and stay with us but he won't go because you know he's he has this sense of mission and my, my my role is here in China my service is to the people of China and I have this knowledge which I must express so no he doesn't he doesn't do that he stays in Hong Kong uh, he stays in Ritchie Hall he stays with his work and as a result of course we have these books and other things he wrote and that was so right till the end and when was that so he passed away in August 1990. My thanks to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, talking there on the life of Hungarian Jesuit priest and China watcher Father Laszlo Ladani. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.